Yeah, and that's exactly lovely. that's exactly what we shoot for. Um, I don't believe we need to cover any other details. I suppose uh, <laughs> we'll start off with our countdown then. That's so, it, right. I'll hang up. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's exactly what we need. <laughs> um, well then, everyone. Five. Four. Three. Two. And one. one. Hello, world. In a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. Ladies and gentlemen. Mesdames, Messieurs. Bienvenue. Welcome to the happy hour. Welcome back, listeners. We have a great treat for you tonight because uh, we have not only one, but two people returning to the podcast this evening. My name is David Auger, and I'm at MetalDave02 on Twitter.com, and I'm joined, as always, by Beth. Hello, I'm at H-I-V-E-R-H-U-I-T on Twitter. And Veronica. Yeah, I'm at C-H-I-L-E underscore Pepper on Twitter. And with us tonight is, uh, well, a man that I, it, it would be, hmm, I would have a hard time introducing this uh, uh, veritable treasure chest of <laughs> knowledge and information about the NHL. We have NHL historian and Habs fan, Mr. David Stubbs. Mr. Stubbs, how are you doing this evening? I'm fine until you start calling me Mr. Stubbs, at which point I hang <laughs> up. So Dave is fine, and I'm delighted to join you all tonight. Thanks for having me. Well, at least I, at least I didn't mess up your name like uh, poor Mrs. <laughs> some nights ago or some episodes <laughs> ago. Oh my gosh! That was the that was that was the yeah. worst of my podcasting career. Can, can we call it? Can we call you Samantha? Maybe <laughs> we have to have a Samantha on now. We have to find yeah. one. Yeah, so I can, so then I can call her a different name. Yeah, so just to <laughs> just to bring in uh Dave here is that we we had Nick Suzuki's mother on one of the one of the nights, and I introduced her as Samantha Suzuki when actually <laughs> her name is Amanda. <laughs> Amanda, and that was that was the biggest ball paw in my life. But so so with with tonight's uh, episode, we um it's early December, and there is simply a huge cache of things. Um, with the Habs, the, specifically to the Habs, dealing with uh, anniversaries and just milestones. Uh, recently, the uh, Habs uh, had celebrated their 111th birthday, and for Lord of the Rings fans, that would be the 111st birthday of the team, founded on December 4th, 1909. And we figured, you know, if who would be the best person to have on but Miss, but but Dave <laughs> Stubbs. Uh, to speak to the history, but further to that, and um, also as important, because you had mentioned it uh, in your tweets uh, today on uh, uh, December 7th, that it was uh, the uh, anniversary of um, Monsieur Bellevaux laying in state after he had passed away um, six years ago. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, talk to us about um, that that time, uh, you know, uh, with a, with covering... Um, uh, Monsieur Bellevaux uh, um, 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 being uh, open to the public there, and uh, also just the, the Habs in general, if you wouldn't mind. Well, uh, you mentioned treasure chest at the beginning. I guess that means uh, I'm old enough to, um, I'll, I'll joke and say that I was there when the Canadians came into being in 1909, 1910. <laughs> and, uh, and, and no one, uh, I, I joke with some of my colleagues, I said, I'm sorry, no matter how nicely you talk to me, you're not getting my 
interview notes from my sit-downs with Lord Stanley of Preston. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've, I've been privileged uh, to be able to pursue for a very good part of my life. Uh, next month will be 45 years that I've been in the journalism business, and to be able to spend a vast majority of that spending time around some of the the great legends of the National Hockey League, and in Montreal, certainly, um, it's shooting fish in the proverbial barrel. I mean, there were so many legends in the city that I've got to know, and uh, the amazing thing for me is that um, so many of these people who were idols of mine uh, as a kid growing up in Montreal uh, emulated these guys on road hockey uh, games and, um, you know, on the local rinks. They become uh, interview subjects later on, and then they become friends. And, um, you know, when you literally just sit down and, and, and have a beer with Yvonne Cornoyer, or when I would have a phone call from Jean Beliveau saying Elise is making a quiche, do you want to come for lunch? You know, you, I'm still bruised from pinching wow. myself driving over. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah certainly uh, you look at this organization, and the, the most storied team certainly uh, in the National Hockey League came into being in 1909-10. In the NHA, the National Hockey Association won their first cup in the NHA. Uh, the NHL was born in 1718. They won their next cup in 24. They've won 24 in all, and everyone keeps talking about the drive for 25. It's a very different league. Uh, there came a point when uh, I think uh, the Canadians won the Stanley Cup five consecutive years from 56 to 60, and they didn't win again until 65. And Jean Beliveau wrote in his autobiography, uh, I'm glad that our five-year drought is over. Well, <laughs> you know, there's an entire generation of Montreal Canadiens fans now to whom the Stanley Cup is a rumor, right? I mean, they see it, they see it presented, and it's been since 1993 that a team in Canada has uh, has won the Stanley Cup. So, um, you know, it's a very different league, obviously. Uh, you, you just look at the composition of the league. You can't compare the teams uh, that the Montreal Canadiens had in their dynasty years in the 50s and the 60s to any teams today or even their their dynasties of the 70s. Um, but there are 48 men who have played for the Montreal Canadiens through the years who were in the Hall of Fame, and uh, no other team has that number. Howie Morenz and Georges Vezina went in on the first class in 1945. Uh, most recently, Chris Chelios in 2013. Rogi Vachon, who was uh, my boyhood hero in 2016, Mark Recchi the year after that, and Guy Carboneau in 2019. There are 11 in the builders category. Uh, you know, so it, it's an amazing thing. You look at the retired numbers You, when you're at the Bell Centre and you get a chance to look up into the rafters. And if you, if you are a bit of a fan of the history or even just to sort of get a sense of what this team is, the number 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 7, 9, 10, 12, 16, 18, 19, 23, 29, and 33 are in the rafters. Uh, you know, so everyone kind of jokes that when someone comes to uh, to Montreal, when they join the team, uh, they have to start choosing numbers very high up the list because there are very few left. And I'll go on record with you in saying that uh, when the day comes that uh, Shea Weber is, yeah. uh, is no longer playing with the Canadians, I'd like to see his number retired for Toe Blake uh, to reunite the punchline of Elmer Locke and Rocket Richard mm. and um, and Toe Blake up in the rafters of the Bell Centre. So I keep haranguing Jeff Molson anytime we speak. I say, I hope at some point, Jeff, that you <laughs> do the right thing and do that. So, um, But it's been it's been an amazing thing to be able to spend as much time as I have around these, these gentlemen and around this team. Uh, they do ceremony unbelievably well. And uh, when yeah. you speak about, uh, about Jean Beliveau, um, the 7th of December is uh, a very interesting anniversary. It's a bittersweet anniversary, certainly. Um, on the 7th of December, 1961, Jean Beliveau played his first game as team captain. He had been with the team since 1953, 
But um, Rocket Richard was captain from 56 to 60. Doug Harvey replaced him for one year. When the Canadians traded Harvey, uh, they had an election of the players in the fall of 1961 to name their next captain. And uh, the first ballot was uh, was a draw. It was uh, Jean Beliveau and Bernie Geoffrion uh, tied in, in votes. And so they went to a second ballot, and Jean Beliveau won uh, and was named captain um, in early October of 1961. He was injured, actually. The Canadians had a barnstorming exhibition tour out to the West Coast, and he injured himself, I think, playing in British Columbia. And uh, he was still rehabbing his knee at the time. So he didn't play his first game as captain until the 7th of December, 1961. Of course, he went on and, and captained some of the uh, the great teams, the quiet dynasty of the 60s. And uh, I would suggest and I would argue that John Beliveau is the greatest ambassador that uh, the NHL mm-hmm. has ever had in terms of uh, what he meant to the game and how he conducted himself on the ice and off the ice. Uh, he never put one hair out of uh, place. He never put one foot out of place. He was the consummate gentleman and he was uh, an absolute prince. It was a privilege to know him as uh, as I did. So the bittersweet part of this is you move forward 53 years from the 7th of December 1961 to that same date in uh, 2014, and that was the first of two days that uh, Mr. Beliveau lay in state uh, at the Bell Centre. He was the third uh, Montreal Canadiens player uh, to be honoured uh, in the arena. Howie Morenz was first in 1937 when he lost his life due to a coronary embolism uh, from an injury that he suffered in a game. Uh, His funeral was actually held uh, on the ice surface of the Montreal Forum before his body was taken up to uh, a cemetery in Montreal. Rocket Richard in 2000 uh, lay in state for a day at the Molson Centre then before it was renamed Bell. And more than 100,000 mourners came and paid their last respects to him before his uh, funeral was celebrated in Montreal uh, a day later. And then Mr. Beliveau, two days at uh, the Bell Centre before uh, his funeral was held, and also, as it was with the Rockets, uh, his funeral was nationally televised, and it was a great outpouring of grief. Uh, I covered uh, the funerals, uh, both of uh, Rocket and uh, Mr. Beliveau, and while I maintain that you know covering Rocket was really a sense of history, I never saw him play the game, but I had studied a lot about him and knew him and spoken with him and done many stories with him. Uh, later on, for me, uh, Jean Beliveau was very personal because I had seen him play and I had got close to him in the last uh, the last decade of his life. And we spent a lot of time together uh, at the Bell Centre and away from the arena. Uh, and uh, when we lost him, um, it, it took a part of me and it was a very, very difficult story to cover. But I was you know, privileged to know his family as well as I did and to spend quiet time with Elise, his, uh, his wife, and Ellen, their daughter, and uh, really get a sense of who he was and what he meant uh, to the community. And to this day, I mean, there still is a sense of who Jean Beliveau is when you're around the Montreal Canadiens. You don't have to necessarily see his banner or his picture. There's just a bit of an aura. If you know the team and you have, you're have you steeped a little bit in its history, uh, you still always get a sense that uh, Mr. Beliveau is around the team. So um, he's been a very, very important special part of my life and um I maintain, too, that while the rocket was the fire in the belly of the Montreal Canadiens in the 50s uh, towards retirement in 1960, uh, Jean Beliveau has been the conscience of this hockey team. And uh, we always just kind of hearken to um, to some of the, the conversations and observations that he had of the team. He's uh, he's still a very, very important part of the hockey fabric in Montreal and among Canadian fans uh, worldwide. Dave, um, there was... There's a story about Jean Beliveau that I'm, I I don't think enough people 
are aware of, or I'm not sure that enough people are aware of, but wasn't he offered a governor general position? Yes, indeed. Uh, Jean Chrétien offered uh, the governor generalship of Canada to Mr. Beliveau. And the reason why Jean Beliveau politely declined this is because uh, Jean felt that he'd been a bit of an absent father to his daughter, Hélène, when she was growing up because he was on the road so much with the team and he had such responsibility with the hockey club. Um, Hélène Beliveau's uh, husband uh, took his own life and, uh, and left her with two very young girls. And uh, Jean Beliveau told Jean Chrétien, with all due respect, sir, um, it's important for me to be a father figure for my daughter's children, for my two granddaughters now. Um, then as much as I would like to offer myself to the service of the country, I think it's very important that I be home for my family. And um, after Jean Beliveau had suffered a stroke, he had two, uh, after he suffered his second stroke, those two young girls, uh, now women, um, took turns sleeping at his bedside uh, at the Montreal General Hospital as he recovered. So the Beliveau family unit is something that is uh, incredibly strong. Um, when I watched uh, Elise Beliveau and Hélène and uh, the granddaughters, Milen and Magali, uh, at the Bell Centre um, for literally eight hours one day and then eight hours the second day, meet every single person who came forward to offer their condolences and you know express their grief at Jean Beliveau's loss. They shook hands with every single person who came there. And um, when I asked uh, Elise about that after the first day, I said, how are you going to come back and do this again? And she just kind of shrugged and said, well, we're Bellavos. As though, mm. like, why would you even need to ask that? I mean, this is who we are. Uh, and I asked one of his uh, granddaughters, I said, how are you possibly going to come back and do this? And she said, look, I'll do this for two days. My grandfather did this for 60 years. So it really put it in perspective. And a very good question. And, and you're right. Uh, that story, there are so many about Jean Bellavo that are, are not well known, but Certainly being offered the Governor Generalship of Canada was something that, you know, he would have absolutely adored doing and he would have been superb in yes. the job. I mean, he would have been just such a wonderful representative um, of this country on the, on the world stage. But it was more important for him at that time in his life uh, to be with his family. And he never, ever, ever regretted that decision. No, of course not. Wow. That's incredible. That's something I didn't know about in the least, actually. That's uh, that's really something almost can't put it into words well uh dave thank you for everything with that uh covering um the the great moments and also the profoundly sad ones uh when it comes uh, to uh, you know our dear dear haves uh something they had mentioned uh before we start recording uh in regards to the legendary figures that have been uh uh with the Canadians. You had mentioned uh, Rocky Richard, you've mentioned Monsieur Beliveau. Of course, um, with uh, the modern times here, and I'm going to go back to March and uh, speak about uh, Henri Richard and how he had passed um, during, uh, back then and how his um, passing couldn't be celebrated as it was uh, like uh, uh, like Morris or uh, Jean Beliveau. Uh, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, the podcast, didn't we have, uh, yeah, I think we had Michelle Lacroix on and we were speaking about uh, Henri uh, Richard, yes. right? Yeah, because we were um, with Michelle on Leap Day at, that, at the hockey game. Mm -hmm. yep, and and that's, had, that's when right. he let us know that the family um, had sort of 
declined the offer of um, celebrating Henri's birthday that day at the Bell Center at the game because he was in such a bad way at the time already. That's correct. Yeah. And then things progressed as they did uh, with him and then, of course, progressed in the way uh, that the world has had with COVID. And I was wondering if you had uh, thoughts about that, Dave. Well, if there's such a thing as there being any any kind of grace and uh, and and, and a saving grace to to someone passing away, it was that because Henri had uh, been locked in the vice grip of Alzheimer's for quite a number of years, and uh, while his physical health was quite stable, um, he literally had, had lost virtually all recall of his of his career. There were many days when his wife, who would visit him every single day, and his kids would visit him uh, regularly. He basically didn't recognize anyone. You could have told him Stanley Cup or the 11 NHL record, 11 Stanley Cups that he had won, and um, he would have been taking your word for it. So um, his health had been declining. In fact, uh, on the Montreal Canadiens' 110th anniversary, uh, they brought together all of their uh, living captains. The only one who would not have been there would have been um, Max Pacioretty because he was uh, playing for the Vegas Golden Knights somewhere else uh, that night. And Henri Richard was not there. Henri would have been the oldest living um, captain, and um, his health was just not good enough for him to go. Uh, so, uh, you know, they paid a great tribute to him, and I had a very nice conversation leading up to that game with uh, one of his sons, Denny. And uh, Denny was telling me, you know, how much Henri meant to the family, to the, the kids, the grandkids, and this was a very, very humble man. I mean, if ever there were a man who could have played the Do You Know Who I Am card, it could have been Henri Richard. Mm -hmm. But he never one time ever asked the Canadians to take his grandkids into the dressing room. He never asked for a free ticket. He never asked for anything. I mean, this was a guy who was very comfortable with who he was. And you figure that, I mean, for a very good part of his life, very unfairly, I might add, he was uh, the Rockets' mm -hmm. little brother. That's how he was viewed. And um, I would argue that uh, as a 200-foot player, Henri Richard was far superior uh, to the Rocket, just because Henri could do everything at every end of the ice. Rocket, from the hash marks in, uh, was uh, a fire-breathing dragon. I mean, he was the greatest natural goal scorer of his generation, of, of his time, one of the best ever of all time. Uh, but Henri could do so many things, and he was this, in this economy-sized package, basically, he was this little powder keg, um, and he was never really a vocal captain. I've talked to guys who played with him, and they've said he would sit across you from the in the dressing room of the Montreal Forum, and if he caught your gaze and you hadn't been giving 100% that night, uh, you just wanted to find a hole somewhere and crawl into it because uh, Henri's eyes would just burn a hole right through you into the wall behind you. Uh, so he was a tremendous talent, um, you know, was – and in fact – you know, when he came up to the Montreal Canadiens in 1956, there was some discussion that, uh, that Maurice might have been ready to retire. I think Maurice still certainly had some good years left in him. Ultimately, he retired in 1960 when he was having difficulty making weight, uh, and he was struggling a little bit with that. But um, Henri actually made Rocket a better player the last five years of Rocket's career. So you figure, here's a guy who is getting ready almost. I mean, at some point, could have been at least contemplating the idea of retirement. And then he goes on and he wins five consecutive Stanley Cups for them as the captain of the Canadians. So, um, you know, I figured here's Henri. He plays his first five years in the NHL. He wins a Stanley Cup every year. But he was so quiet. I mean, the joke is that someone, some reporter asked uh, Toe Blake, the coach of the Canadians at the time, tell me, does Henri speak English? And Toe said, I don't even know if he speaks French. I don't think I've ever heard him talk. 
You know, so uh, <laughs> Maurice had brought him into general manager Frank Selke's office, sat him down, said, "Here's my here's my younger brother. I'd like you uh, I'd like you to set him up and have him play for the Canadians." And, uh, and Rocket walked out of the room. Well, Frank Selke <laughs> dug into his desk and pulled out a two year old daytimer pad and ripped the sheet off. And if you go online and Google Henri Richard's first contract, you'll find it. It's absolutely preposterous. It's this blue sheet of paper and uh, written uh, in Frank Selke's handwriting is uh, Henri Richard's two-year contract with how much he would be paid if he stayed with the big club and how much he'd play or he'd be paid if he was down uh, in the minors. So um, he he came in in 1956, played brilliantly. um, And while he was in his brother's shadow, as I say unfairly, uh, when his brother retired, people really got a sense of who Henri Richard was. Um, when he was playing with the junior Canadians, the juniors would play at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto while the Canadians would play the next day uh, against the Leafs. And I think it was a Toronto reporter who said, uh, see the pocket rocket play on uh, Saturday or on Friday and uh, and see uh, the rocket play on Sunday. So that's how he kind of picked up the name pocket rocket. But anytime he was asked, uh, are you Maurice Richard's brother? He'd say, I'm Henri Richard. And he mm-hmm. never ever discredited or or trivialized or marginalized his brother. He knew how important Maurice was to the Montreal Canadiens and to, on a much grander scale, I mean, the political landscape in Quebec at the time. He understood all of that, but he was a very, very fiery individual. And uh, look, these guys were a lot of years apart. And so yeah. um, Henri right. Richard was still in short pants living at home when Maurice left home and was getting married and was playing with the Canadians. So, you know, they were uh, a good a good stretch apart, and um, they never really, while they were blood brothers, I mean, it's not like they were, they were you know, an extension of each other. They mm-hmm. lived very different lives, but they respected each other, and uh, they were very friendly, and they had a wonderful relationship uh, as brothers. And you try to figure, I mean, are you ever going to have a brother combination in the NHL that would be that successful again? And, I mean, no, I mean, how can you? How can... How can you have someone who would be, you know, like Rocket Richard, and then, you know, his his brother uh, follows him um, some years later into the captaincy, and then leads the team to another pile of Stanley Cup championships? Um, they were the two of them together. I mean, were just uh, a fabulous package, and uh, they're um, again one of the. Um, it's one of the sad things when you're part of a big family, you're going to lose family members, and uh, losing Ari. This past March was uh, was was very sad, and um, the last game actually that I attended, that I've attended um, before the NHL was paused due to the coronavirus, was the 10th of March, and that was the night the Canadians paid tribute to Henri that night. And I spent that evening with his uh, family in one of the corporate suites at the Bell Center, and uh, the stories that the family told about uh, about their father and grandfather and uh, and late husband. Um, it was remarkable. So um, RE is a guy who has a very special place in, in the hearts and the souls of uh, Montreal Canadiens fans. And certainly uh, he too was a very, very special uh, person to me when I had a chance to sit with him for any stretch of time to have a conversation about his glory days and what he thought about the Canadians of today. And Dave, did you have, um, so, I mean, we've all seen the movie, The Rocket, and mm-hmm. Maurice was kind of a, he was a bit of a, I don't know what, to, I, a, kind of a political figure or kind of an activist, or did he just kind of fall into that role? You know, sort of all of the, the politics happening at the time in the province um, after he got a, suspended for the playoffs for the entire playoffs that year. And then the St. Patrick's Day riots happened. 
Yeah, well, Maurice had always kind of maintained I'm just a hockey player. He never wanted to be a political figurehead, but that was never going to happen. You have to understand that in the province of Quebec at that time, you look at some of the signage around the Montreal Forum, you look at the pictures of the Montreal, uh, just the city of Montreal, you look at how much English there was in in the city. Um, the French felt uh, very much under the thumb of, uh, of the mm-hmm. English minority, as as it were at that time. And uh, Clarence Campbell was um, the president of the NHL. And when uh, Rocket, you have to look at some of the film and put Rocket in context. I mean, this was a guy who literally carried opponents to the net on his back uh, when he was playing hockey. He was taking the cheapest shots and referees were looking the other way. And um, he took unbelievable abuse. I mean, um, people would spend lifetimes in the penalty box in today's NHL if they, they did to you know a player what guys were doing in those days to Rocket Richard. So that night, finally, in uh, in Boston, Rocket snapped. He got uh, he got into a, a terrible <laughs> brawl, a stick-swinging brawl with uh, Hal Laco of the uh, the Boston Bruins, and Clarence Campbell suspended him for the, uh, the last games of the regular season and the entire playoffs. Well, that just lit uh, the fuse uh, in the yeah. French population in the city of Montreal. And, um, you know, it exploded into the Richard riot, uh, the game at the Montreal Forum on the 17th of March, 1955, and it redefined the political landscape in Quebec. It was kind of called uh, a bit of the quiet revolution where the French Canadians uh, rose up against what they thought and, and what quite rightly were a lot of injustices against them mm-hmm. um, from the English population and from the, the English leaders of of the day. So. Rocket never wanted to be the guy who was going to be out front of the parade holding the placard or waving the flag and having uh, the the army of people behind him. But he also was an intelligent enough man to understand that uh, people saw him for more than than he was, more than just a hockey player, that he was the guy who uh, French Canadians were going to rally behind. So it um, it was a difficult thing. It was something that he adjusted to and he adapted to but it's not anything that the rocket wanted and um that movie is is absolutely wonderful if you um i attended the premiere of that film oh, wow. in 2005 with uh elmer Locke, who was uh who was rocket centerman on the punchline and with kenny mosdell who was played on the canadians and was rocket's best friend and kenny mosdell was in tears that night just seeing his, oh, his best friend's life kind of put out on the big screen before him there there were some um, artistic liberties taken. I mean, uh, some of the script deviated from what the reality was, but that's that's kind of how films work, right? Uh, so I think that it was, on balance, it was an absolutely wonderful film. Roy Dupuis, who plays the Rocket, was probably born to play the Rocket. He yeah. was just sensational in that role. Um, and you know, there were there were just some some really really nice points that were that were addressed in that, and uh, to see. The way uh, they took those Montreal Canadiens teams of the of the 40s and the 50s that Rocket was playing on it to try to put him in a little bit of a context of what he was trying to do to just play hockey uh, was great. So I think it's still in fairly regular rotation on some of the channels that you see on TV, some of the movie channels. And if you ever, or listeners tonight ever ever get a chance to see it, just sit down, spend some time with it. And um, great little story about it. The guy who plays Hal Lako for the Boston Bruins actually actually Matthew Dandenault who played yeah. the Canadians and won three cups <laughs> with the Red Wings. Well, they gave Matthew Dandenau a pair of old leather skates with the tubular steel blades that those guys wore in those days, and he couldn't even stand up on them. Oh, no. So he, he, he tried to literally skate around the ice, and he kept falling down. So they finally took his, his own molded boots, oh. and they painted them black. 
and uh, they they bolted some uh, some blades onto them and uh, tried to make them look vintage. But uh, I I still kid Matthew. I say, what kind of hockey player are you? I mean, you know, they're trying to cast you as one of the one of the Rocket Richard's great antagonists, and you can't even stand up on your own two feet. So. <laughs> But there's some wonderful, uh, wonderful scenes in that movie and the way they cut uh, some footage of Roy Dupuis into actually 1940s Montreal. Uh, the filmmaking is beautiful. And it's yes, worth, it's uh, so it's beautiful. It's worth investment to watch it. And who's, oh, what's the name? It escapes me. Uh, former Tampa Bay Lightning, the, the player who played Jean Béliveau. Vincent LeCavalier yes. plays Rocket. He's, uh, it's a very, very small part. Mike Ricci uh, plays Elmer Locke, and he was cast Elmer, I think, as much for his nose as anything else. <laughs> because Elmer had this wonderful nose, which was broken seven times. And he did lots of really, he, got, he did a lot of the dirty work for Rocket. He went into the corners yeah. and, uh, and took on guys bigger than himself to clear some ice in front of the net for Rocket. But Ricci has this uh, has this, this this great proboscis in the middle of his face too. So it was um, I think that maybe I've kidded Ricci about it. I said, were you cast first for your nose or for your? <laughs> but so yeah, there were some some nice uh, some nice cameos, some nice uh, nice vintage uh, little appearances. But uh, yeah, in fact, Vinny Lecavalier uh, idolized Jean Beliveau, and that's why he chose a number four for himself with the uh, with the Tampa Bay Lightning. And um, it's, uh, he does a, a nice job playing that and. Uh, uh, but Roy Dupuis playing the Rocket is uh, is absolutely glorious. I mean, he that's a tour de force performance for him for sure. Yeah, they made him such. They made him so just a human, like not just the hockey player kind of hero that we all know, but he's just a husband and a father. And I've watched it countless times. Yeah, it's it's a great movie, and it's one of those things. I mean, I'll be flipping through the channels, and I hit upon it, and I'll stop, and then the next thing I know, I'm watching it all the way through again, and I'll just sort of yeah. I've seen this 173 times, <laughs> but I mean, I'm going to watch it 174. That's, that's that kind of movie for me. Dave and Beth, have you watched it? Uh, some time ago, I was actually while you were all talking about, it, I was wondering if it's on any streaming, at least in the states. I may have to do a little bit more research on it and plug it on Twitter. Once I, if I find uh, anything about it, but I'll have to revisit it at some point soon. I have yeah, it on it's DVD. Really, it's really worth watching for sure. It's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful film. And again, there were some liberties taken. Uh, one of the things that happens actually near the beginning of the film, um, Richard is suspended. The announcement comes down that, uh, that Rocket has been suspended. And um, and and Dick Irvin is literally bouncing off the walls. Or mm. this is as as I'm sorry, not as it's not the suspension itself. It's the riot. The riot is taking place. The tear gas bomb has gone off in the Montreal Forum. The police come down and tell the Montreal Canadiens and coach Dick Irvin that uh, the game has been forfeited and cleared the building and, and the Red Wings have won the game. Well, Dick Irvin, the coach, is bouncing off the walls, yelling oh. and screaming and and carrying on, saying, "This is an outrage and you can't do this." Well. Dick Irvin Jr., the legendary broadcaster, was a little concerned about how his father was going to be played. And um, as as it would be, Dick Jr. was doing stats for his father at the Montreal Forum that night in 1955. He was upstairs in the press box, and he ran down with the smoke billowing in the building. And he said he had never seen his father calmer in all his life. And his dad said, Dick, oh. let's get in the car and let's drive around Montreal. I want to see what's happening out there because I think <laughs> this might get a little crazy. And mm -hmm. so Irvin said that when he saw that, first scene and he saw how his father had been portrayed he said okay this isn't a documentary it's going to be a bit of a, a bit of a hollywood if you will take on on this and there will be a bit of exaggeration and so he could sit back and watch the film and enjoy it for what it was he stopped trying to say my gosh i hope they portray my father this way or that way or did he use that turn of phrase or did he necessarily hold a pen that way so 
Um, hmm. you, you can kind of look, there would be very few people who would be able to pick up on some of the nuances like that. Those who spend a lot of time around the history of the game and know the characters and the personalities would see some things and, and raise their eyebrows. Or one thing quickly, I mean, Ricci was sitting in, in Irvin's office at the forum uh, playing Elmer Locke when um, when they come down and, and Irvin walks in and announces that uh, Rocket's been suspended. Well, at the movie that night, I said to Elmer Locke, I said, Elmer, what was wrong with that scene? And he sort of looked at me and said, well, was I not wearing the right clothes? Or was, and I said, no, Elmer, could you retire the year before? You were on oh. the golf course. You, were, you weren't even there. And so he laughed and he said, no, you're, you're right. I wouldn't have been. I retired in 1954 and this happened in 1955. So there were little things like that. But again, they're... That's just nitpicking because uh, to take a movie like this, to take a story as big and as sweeping and to put a canvas as broad as you would need to talk about the rocket's life, um, this was uh, this was a wonderfully, wonderfully done movie. Charles Binamé was the director, and he did a fantastic job. So if you can find it, it's uh, streaming, or I think it's probably um, you can you can probably uh, find it to, to to buy it or to rent it on on YouTube, possibly or somewhere else. But uh, yeah. find it, go look for it because. Uh, it's really worth your time, certainly, as we sit here now, uh, you know, in the month of December, uh, people are yearning for hockey. This would certainly be a nice investment of a couple hours. Mm-hmm. Agreed. My and mom just... and I... Go ahead, Beth. I was saying, my mom and I, we've been making... we uh, Every every couple of weekends or so, we watch a different hockey movie um, because we are still um, relatively new baby hockey fans. Um, and so we haven't... <laughs> all of the legendary hockey movies. And I, so the rocket is still on our list, but we are going to watch it. Got to do. You've seen Slapshot then, of course, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen that a couple of times, actually. There's one scene in Slapshot and I, it just, for some reason, it's always dawned on me. I guess when, when the Charlestown chiefs are playing, I'm trying to remember what the team is they're playing, but there's, there's a guy named Poodles Lucier who lines up a big, heavily bearded guy who lines up against one of the Hanson brothers <laughs> And one of the Hansons looks at him and says, Paul Blake, you know him? And there's no answer. He says, no. Well, I found the guy who plays, Marc Bousquet is the guy who plays Poodle Lucier. And oh, I wow. called him. I said, what do you know about Toe Blake? I mean, you never answered the Hanson brother. I mean, what? Did you, did you know anything about Toe? And he went off on this grand thing. We And I did a story on him. Oh, oh wow. And he knew a ton about Toe Blake. But he said, I wasn't oh. going to tell one of the Hanson brothers. I would have destroyed the script. So, <laughs> so that's one of those, those fun things when you, I, I have this kind of weird off-centered sense of curiosity that when I've, I've often wondered about that, did you know Toe Blake? And he never answers. So I wanted to get a hold of the guy and find out if he actually did know anything about about Toe Blake and darned if he didn't know a ton about it. Incredible. That's amazing. And I was just going to piggyback on, um, because I, I did a quick Google on uh, the Rocket movie, and apparently it's available on iTunes, but you'd have to uh, pay for it, unfortunately. But as for straight streaming, like I said, I'll have to do a little bit more digging. But um, that's incredible. Thanks I have for a library that. card, Dave. Oh, do you? No. Does that, does that count for iTunes? No, no, it's, <laughs> no, but you can, you can rent DVDs for free from the local, your local library. That is That's, very true in an often overlooked point. Yes. I, of course, remember still this. open where I sit in Montreal because of the pandemic. Now our libraries are closed. I cannot even get oh. into the libraries. I actually did, I did a conference for my public library on the history of hockey a couple of weeks ago, and it was done, of course, on a Zoom call. So mm-hmm. it was, and one of the great things about that 
is uh, Scotty Bowman showed up on this call. And so I oh, wow. that Scotty's face pops up. And of course, being a journalist, I mean, halfway through my conference, I'm interviewing Scotty for the benefit of all these other folks who were there yeah, asking Scotty to relate stories. So, 100%. so our libraries aren't even open uh, up here. But um, that's what is open, too. Dave? Well, uh, for us now, we're pretty much locked down in, uh, in, in, in the red zone, if you will, in, in the Montreal area where I am. Uh, restaurants are closed. They're doing takeout only. Uh, stores are open, but they are now limiting the number of people who can actually go into the stores. They, uh, depending on the square footage of the store, uh, they can only allow so many people, and they have someone with a, with a clicker at the door counting the number of people who are coming in. Um, so lots and lots. The movie theaters are closed. Um, a ton of things are closed. Uh, some things are open, but you know it's just it, it's just a surreal situation. And as much of an inconvenience as it is, I just sort of look at it and say, you know what? There are a lot of people who are a lot worse off at this point. So oh yeah, you know it's um, it's a bit of a new reality for everyone going into this holiday season. And you just hope that everyone is doing the right thing and following the. The instructions. I know that uh, patience is growing thin, and there is COVID fatigue. Um, and I guess we'll get mixed signals from the, the politicians in our in our various constituencies who tell you one thing one day and something else the next. But let's face it, there's no rule book. There's no there's no instruction manual for this. And um, no. you know they're trying to find a way to to push this thing back. And uh, the great news that a vaccine is coming. And I just hope that uh, that people will get vaccinated because uh, this is something that. Uh, has just taken far too great a toll on on too many people. Uh, far too many people have died, and even people who have gotten sick from this uh, will be affected in some fashion uh, for the rest of their lives. So just um, let's hope that we can kind of see through this. And uh, hockey's been kind of a small part of it. It's an important part for many of us. We love the game. Um, you know, it's it's my livelihood. It's it's what I do for a living. Uh, but that said, I mean, you put this, you put the game of hockey on on sort of a bigger stage here, and there are more important things that we're dealing with. So let's um, hope that uh, we get beyond this uh, safely, as safely as we can, and uh, then get to the new normal, whatever it's going to be, because normal as we knew it before uh, the middle of March this past yeah. uh, year mm-hmm. uh, is not normal as it's going to be moving forward. That's for sure. No. Well, the reason everything has to be locked down is because people can't be trusted to do the right thing. So they have to prevent people from being in the same place at, at, at once. So, um, And we're approaching that in British Columbia, too. Um, there's no official mask mandate, but wherever you go, if you're going to an indoor location, they very kindly ask you to have your mask on. And if you don't have one, please approach one of our Uh, one of our um, staff and they'll give you one. So that's a kind of a nice way of saying you can't be anywhere indoors without a mask now. Yeah. It's mandatory here in Quebec. It is mandatory. Anytime that you're in any closed indoor space, you just, you put one on and you have one on and every now and then you'll see someone kind of come in without one and and everyone just kind of kind of gives them the evil eye. And then someone will just say, Oh my gosh. And they just, you literally just have a brain cramp. You forget. And someone will immediately dig into their Mm -hmm. pocket and put it on. It's not like they're, they're not wearing one out of, in a sense, of protest, but there are mm-hmm. there is that small group of people out there too who are, uh, you know, carrying on and and doing things well. You know, you just you hope that um, you know for all the people who are protesting as vehemently as they are that this is an in, you know that it's trampling on their human rights and their, their civil <laughs> rights. 
you just hope that uh, their friends and families aren't going to get yeah. hit from this uh, exactly. because yeah. of, uh, their their perception of, of what their what their rights are. It's it's just a very crazy thing right now, and it's uh, it's been uh, it's been a real awakening. As as much as we've seen some of the bad stuff, uh, it's also been a wonderful opportunity to see the goodness. You see people, you know, coming to the aid of other people and taking care of each other, and uh, that's been an amazing thing. And I've I've always had a great, um, just 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 great respect and admiration for people on the, the healthcare, you know, in that industry. But I mean, these people who are on the front lines, I mean, they are they're amazing. The work they've been doing. You try to imagine walking into that every single day and going home and you know seeing people die literally on your watch, you know, and then try to you know wash yourself off, you know, literally and figuratively that night, and then go back to work the next day. Um, they've done they've done amazing amazing work. So let's. Uh, Anyway, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll move on and, and hope that, as I say, that uh, things improve in, in the shorter term and the vaccine will will be effective and we can uh, try to get ourselves uh, back on the rails. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't put it any better. Um, trying to think there. Uh, for Beth and myself, we live in the United States, so there's quite a, uh, it's, 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 uh, well, people are dealing with it any way that they can and it hasn't been uh, looking that great for the states. Um, let's see, uh, New York wise, I know that, uh, Governor Cuomo just, oh yeah, today he had, uh, Dr. Fauci in on his, uh, daily briefings, which started again this past, uh, week or so. And, uh, they were having a good conversation about New York and how, uh, how New York is faring. And, um, I think, in, in, in regards to the vaccine, uh, last week, uh, Governor Cuomo said at the, at the end of his, um, <clears throat> briefing, took a box that was sitting next to him, put it on top of a counter and said, this is a box of Pfizer vaccines. And this is all the technology that goes into storing these things. And it is without a doubt, a complicated process, but it's good to see that they're taking all the safeguards that they need to, in order to get something like that out to people. So, and as you said, yeah, I've got lots vaccines of friends coming. who played up with NHL teams who live in Florida. And I mean, that's, that's an absolute hotbed down there, mm -hmm. you know, and they just, mm -hmm. And, and you try to understand, they're just saying, look, Dave Keon lives down in uh, lives down in Florida, and he and his wife will kind of go out every now and then for a bite of lunch, but they're just staying close to home, and when the weather's nice, Dave will jump on his bike and go out and, and, and go cycling, but, you know, people are just, they're trying to stay in, they're just trying to stay away from other people, yeah. and let's face it, we're all social creatures, and, you know, certainly... I mean, for, for those of us who cover the game, it was just surreal this past season. I mean, especially when you turn into the playoffs and we're watching games on television and then we're getting on to Zoom calls and we're interviewing players. And that was it was a, where, you know, the, the, the quotes and so on that we normally harvest uh, after a game that we sow into game stories uh, that worked. It was a tough situation for me because just the very nature of the work that I do is feature reporting and it's feature stories. And. I'm not going to be able to get anything of substance that I would normally use in a feature piece that kind of talks about the human being and, and sort of peels back the layers of a player. I'm not going to get much of that in a Zoom call when I get to ask one question and maybe a follow-up if I'm lucky. So one of the things that I, that, that I wonder about, and maybe some of my colleagues are wondering about too, is that we've always in the past, we've had dressing room access after games mm. and practices and so on. Well, when and if the time comes that, uh, you know, more people are welcome back into the arenas and we start covering games, I wonder if, you know, the the dressing room access has evaporated forever. Uh, they just may say that it makes more sense to bring a couple players out into an interview room and have them available to us that way. 
um, it may change dramatically. Jeff Molson has spoken a little bit about, you know, whether or not the Bell Centre would welcome uh, Canadian fans, how they would do that. Um, are you going to put 20,000 plus fans shoulder to shoulder um, back in that Bell Centre right away? That's that's not happening. Um, you know, if you get vaccinated and the person beside you hasn't, I mean, do you still are you going to feel comfortable sitting beside someone? So these are all things all part of the, the big equation. Uh, the amazing thing that the NHL did through this, this playoff season is going into those bubbles. They tested, they did more than 33,000 COVID tests and they did not have one positive result. Uh, I mean, you try to figure that, that's just astonishing. And that was a tribute to the NHL and the NHLPA and the way mm-hmm. these people got themselves organized and relied on the medical professionals and everyone bought into it. They were told if this is going to work, everyone has to buy into it. You stay in the bubble. You're not going to decide after you, you know, after a game or before the next series. You go out for a couple of beers with the boys. They, these guys were living inside hotels. It was I don't want to say a, a prison camp um, kind of environment, but let's face it, they were they were they were locked up. And anyone who says that this Stanley Cup to the Tampa Bay Lightning deserves an asterisk. Uh, no. because of uh-huh. the way this season ended, I would, uh, I'd say, yeah, sure it does. And the asterisk should be there for a good reason, because there has been no Stanley Cup championship that has been played and won in these circumstances. Um, in the past, the Montreal Canadiens, yeah. Scotty Bowman and I have joked about it. Scotty said, look, we, I used to take my teams up to the Laurentians. We'd go to a hotel and we'd lock ourselves away from family and friends and stuff, but they could also come back to Montreal and they could go to dinner and go out and hang out together. Well, that didn't happen. And so for mm-hmm. the teams to get into the Stanley Cup playoffs as they were held and to actually have to try to work through that and uh, be away from their families uh, for the length of time that they were and to and to live in that situation, these guys, uh, it was quite remarkable how it was done. And, uh, and my hat was off to the medical people at the NHL and the Players Association, how they put this thing off, how they put, put it on, and how they pulled it off, because it was uh, it really was a remarkable thing to be able to do that and keep everyone healthy. Yes, it was. I was I was surprised. I really thought that we weren't going to get any hockey at all, or that it would have to be shut down in the middle. I was very surprised and impressed with what the NHL did. Well, at some point, I think it was early on in the process when the return to play was being discussed, uh, Commissioner Gary Bettman was asked in a news conference, a, a Zoom call, he was asked, at what point, how many positive tests will it take for you finally to say you're going to have to withdraw a team or you're going to shut down? And at that point, Gary just said, look, we're just going to rely on our medical professionals and we will follow their advice. I mean, those are the guys who are going to tell us how to do this. And so the NHL moved forward and they wound up without a single positive test. So. Mm-hmm. The thing that, that's remarkable for a Montreal Canadiens fan through all of this is, of course, the Canadians kind yes. of backed in, if you will, in terms yeah. of the postseason, right? I mean, they weren't supposed to be there based on if that season unfolds and goes 82 games as it was supposed to. The Canadians weren't going to make the playoffs. So let's they get in. They, they go in there as the seed that they were, and they played out of their minds. They knock off the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, they give the Philadelphia Flyers a really good run in the first round. And hockey fans in, in Montreal, Habs fans, I think, generally were pretty conflicted. There was a school of yeah. thought that a lot, of, a lot of fans wanted the team to tank, right? I mean, let's just yeah. get out of town, just shut everything down, and let's, let's go for Lafreniere. Well, number one, Lafreniere was not going to be a guarantee. You get in the lottery, and you may have a better yeah. shot at him. But Claude Julien was asked about that, too. He said, so what happens if we tank, so to speak? We, we, get, we get blown out early, and we still don't get Lafreniere. Then who's going to be happy? So 
the Canadians go in, and this winds up being uh, a bit of a coming-out party for Nick Suzuki and for Jesperi Kotkaniemi. These two guys play great hockey. Um, you have Mark Bergevin now sitting back, really getting a sense of what he had, and he's and he's seeing these young guys, and it gave him the opportunity to be able to move Max Domi, and he might not have been able to do that necessarily or be motivated to do that if he doesn't see those two young centermen perform the way they do. Um, he extends in the offseason, he extends Brendan Gallagher and Jeff Petrie. He gets Jake Allen as a good backup for Carey Price. He's got some scoring, obviously, in Toffoli and Anderson. He's got some size and grit on defense in Edmondson. Uh, you have Alexander Romanov, who's coming. You have Cole Caulfield, who's coming maybe a year away. Um, and so this, these playoffs really showed Mark Bergevin what he had, and I think the playoffs showed Mark Bergevin what he needed. And I think also the performance of the Canadians opened the eyes of some of these free agents. And these guys might not have had any interest in coming to Montreal if they hadn't seen the Habs perform the way they did in the postseason. Now they're suddenly looking at this team saying, you know what, this can be a pretty decent place to go and play. And so Bergevin, you know, brings these guys in, uh, extends everybody, signs them to contracts. And I don't think in recent memory there's been the same kind of buzz around the Montreal Canadiens and excitement and an enthusiasm for what might be coming. And nothing is guaranteed, of course. But um, fans are really excited about uh, how this team has been put together. And uh, I think they have every reason to be. I think this could be a really, really exciting team. So we'll see how much they get to show themselves in what might be a shorter season this year. The NHL wants to move toward a, a, a you know, 2021-22 full, full bore regular season. But uh, this is a team that has some seasoning and it has some uh, good young talent coming. And it's got good balance. Uh, Claude Julien, I could roll four lines pretty comfortably and feel really good doing that. So um, it's going to be fun. I think that anyone who's a Montreal Canadiens fan has got to be excited about where this team is today. For sure. Yeah. Now, I want to um, – there's a, there's a slew, of, slew of topics that ran through my head while we were uh, talking about things. But <laughs> one in particular, now that you mentioned it, is that the past week we've seen articles uh, coming out from various uh, – people uh you know from various journalists in montreal in particular i believe uh mark antoine Goldin, i think had an article and also eric angles talking about the the hype around alexander romanov uh do you want to uh elaborate a little bit more on that because I i'm saying that in regards to how the coaching staff is just raining laurels and have absolute confidence in, in romanov's ability uh being able to play from day one on the Habs, despite him being young and uh, from the KHL with the different ice surface and all the other variables. Well, maybe the best thing that Romanov has going for him is that perhaps his English isn't strong enough and he doesn't have a good enough sense yet of what the Montreal Canadiens organization is about to, to let this kind of crush down on him because the weight of expectation has crushed a lot of very good young hockey players coming here. Um, I think that um, we always kind of joke you're sort of as as good as your last game. A goalie sometimes in Montreal can be as good as the last save or the last uh, goal that he is allowed. Uh, so, no, Romanov certainly looks like he looks like the real deal. I mean, he looks like a guy who, who can, you know, make a difference. And um, any time there's any kind of discussion about anything, and when the Tampa Bay Lightning were doing what they were doing, and people were just moaning and, and oh, my God, we can't, I can't believe that Sergeyev got away, right? I mean, so... I don't know that he's going to be the guy who replaces that, but here's a young guy who's coming in 
and uh, and can bring a lot to this uh, to this team. I think you know, and he'll be well well schooled too. If he comes in and if he's prepared, if he's going to play with the team this year, which seems like for all intents and purposes he's going to. He's going to have some very, very good counsel in some of these guys. He's going to have Shea Weber take him a little bit under his wing and Jeff Petrie the same thing, and he's going to learn a lot from these guys. And there's a lot to be said for uh, for having some, some good, wise, seasoned people uh, teaching you the ropes. And, and the Canadians will not put him in a position to fail. I think they have enough strength on the blue line and enough balance that they're not going to have to lean on him so heavily that any weakness or, or sort of any any problem that he may have would be exposed early and might kind of break down his confidence a little. So we'll see. Again, it's impossible to predict. You can you can look at a guy's uh, you you can look at all the analytics you want. You can look at video of him. You can see how he played uh, in Russia on a larger ice surface. You can look at all those things. But you know, once he gets here and he starts playing uh, in the NHL and he's up against uh, some interesting talent. Let's and let's face it too. If there's there's going to be a Canadian division. Uh, he's going to be seeing um, a lot of guys uh, quite consistently, and a lot of guys will be seeing him quite consistently. So they'll figure each other out in, in a bit of a hurry. But, uh, no, I'm, I'm excited. I think Romanov uh, is certainly going to uh, bring something very valuable to this team. And, um, you know, let's let him get on the ice for training camp and, and let him get out there and, and play and show what he can do. And uh, hopefully he, um, you know, he, he understands that this is a marathon. He's not going to do it all in one season or one shift. And I think that uh, he'll be taught that uh, early and often by by guys like uh, Weber and Petrie for sure. And Absolutely. Dave, we had um, we had recently Gord Miller from TSN on the podcast, and he's sort of an advocate for um, young players, like you know he he and I have a bit of a feud over uh, whether Kutkaniemi should have been brought over to the NHL as quickly as he was, <laughs> but he always cites the case of Puliarvi in Edmonton, who kind of, he obviously didn't turn out the way that they hoped, but he thought that part of it was bringing him over as such a young player and didn't speak a word, word of English, for example, didn't know anybody, was in a completely foreign land and didn't have any kind of, you know, he was just kind of away from home and away from everything that he knew and didn't know. So knowing the organization as intimately as you do, what kind of support do you think that they would have for Romanov, like as far as the language barrier and all of that? Well, I know that Brendan Gallagher didn't have the language barrier, but I mean, when he came to Montreal and when he started with the team, he was living with Josh Georges. And I don't know that that necessarily is something that works now. I mean, and that wasn't even that many years ago. But, I mean, Sidney Crosby lived with Mario Lemieux. Um, I don't yeah. think it's necessarily a bad thing if a guy like Romanov would, have, instead of, you know, living in a hotel to start or, or living in an apartment somewhere uh, in the city by himself, uh, would would that I don't think that necessarily is such a good thing. I think that uh, you know if he gets a chance to maybe live with with a family, it's it's a little weird to think of an NHL player being billeted somewhere. But I mean I think that there's there's something to be said for that. I think that you know if he gets a chance to you know kind of have some home cooking with with another player's family and spend some time with them and travel to and from the rink, uh, it's maybe for the short term it's not it's not a bad thing. So. I think the Canadians will certainly do everything to ensure that he will be put in the best possible position to succeed. And he won't be left hung out. Uh, he won't be left in the situation where, 
you know, here's a young kid who's uh, the culture shock who comes over and has basically no idea what he's doing. He doesn't speak enough of the language to feel comfortable. Um, and let's face it, in, in Montreal, when you play with the Montreal Canadiens, um, there's a side of this city uh, where you can turn down the wrong street. And by that, I mean you can just you mm. can wind up in, 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 in restaurants and places where people are always going to be wanting to buy you a meal and buy you a drink. And you, know, you can't reach into your pocket for anything. And I think that, you know, um, they, they mean well in doing that. But um, I know that uh, there have been some, been some Russian players who have come here and uh, mm-hmm. I think at one point, Alex Kovalev, when he played in Montreal, he had a number of Russians who were coming to him and trying to get him involved with things. And he said, I'll sit and talk to you so long as we speak English, because he felt that, you know, if they were honest enough and felt strongly enough about wanting to do business with him, they'd feel comfortable speaking English. And he never felt that he was being sort of held over a barrel by by who knows what, what kind of influences he would be facing. So. I think that if, if the Canadians may well do that, they may wind up saying, look, it, it may be not a bad idea. And if a member of the Canadians would, would feel comfortable uh, doing that, it doesn't have to be one of the defensemen. It could be one of the one of the younger players. These guys, um, hey, they, they, they travel together. Uh, they hang out together. They play video games together. They're, uh, they're doing TikTok together. They're doing mm-hmm. everything else together. So um, it might not be a bad idea. And it may be something the team is going to consider. But um, every individual is different. And we'll see we'll see how Romanov adapts uh, to uh, coming here and playing in Montreal and getting to know uh, the city and getting to know the routine and uh, to and from uh, the rink and Brossard and the Bell Center. And uh, then we'll get a sense of, of what he can do. But the, the first year, probably in the first two years, are going to be a very interesting learning experience for him. And uh, I think what he learns in those first couple of years will be very important to his development in the long term. Absolutely. And he's also bringing his fiance, which his is wife. They got that... married. Did they get married? They got married oh in Russia. God. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, and so I think that he's probably in better so hands. He's than not going to be lonely. Be Shea Weber or Jeff <laughs> 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 so. uh, It's so funny because that's that just problem. I don't keep up. I don't keep up with the social end of these guys. I yeah. See them as it, it was just on Instagram. It was just posted on Instagram. I don't think it was made like a big deal out of. But yeah, they got married in Russia early. I think over the summer. Right. Okay. Oh, well, I think I knew that. Yeah. It'll be a very interesting experience for them, certainly coming over here, because uh, you know this is this is a unique hockey market, as as we all know. I mean, every city embraces hockey in its own way, but uh, Montreal is uh, is a very special animal. It uh, it takes care of uh, of, of itself, uh, its players. The team, uh, and again, the enthusiasm that, uh, that I'm getting, that I'm feeling now, the sense that I'm feeling uh, in the city when you talk to fans and you just sort of get a bit of a feel for, you know, the vibe. Certainly coming out of the playoffs last year, there was this great sense of, uh, of enthusiasm that this team has some very special things to do. And I think that uh, pretty early to say right now, but uh, this has got to be the best mark, uh, best offseason that Mark Bergevin has had. I mean, to be able to go out and get those guys that uh, that he did, and uh, certainly to extend uh, Brendan Gallagher and Jeff Petrie, uh, were huge. And I think that uh, that's going to be uh, very, very important. Um, you know, Gallagher is is one of the great leaders in that room, and um, mm-hmm. you know, it's leadership by committee. I mean, Weber wears the C. But everyone's expected to stand up in that room and uh, and say their piece. Uh, Carrie Price is certainly a leader, uh, and and you know Gallagher is a very very important part of that as well too. So um, 
We'll see, but I know that all of us are very excited about when we're finally going to get going. I know that the league and the players, the players' association, are working hard to uh, try to work out the details here to get this going and to get training camps organized. So we don't know. There's uh, there's no date circled on the calendar at this point, but uh, we'll see. I know that they want to get this going. Hockey's a huge business, and it's in everyone's best interest to get the game back. And we'll just see uh, what the dynamic will be. I mean, whether we're playing in bubbles again, or you know, what number of fans who might be playing in front of um, the NHL events. People put on an amazing show to be able to um, organize the games that they did in uh, in Edmonton and Toronto to do it as they did. So we'll uh, we'll see how they can continue to move forward. And again, I mean the. The thing that's going to have the final say in all of this is uh, is COVID nineteen. Yeah. It's it's the one that's calling the shots now, and uh, it will be uh, up to the virus and and how it evolves and how it continues to move and and uh, and flex its muscles uh, before we all get any sense of, uh, of how hockey can can play and and resume um, in the fashion that we would all like to see. Right, for sure, and uh, we are starting to come up on our time. I of course have. So many other questions yeah. that I ask you, but we could we could go on all night, and I don't want to keep you all night, of course, Dave. Um, so I'm trying to think uh, before uh, before we officially call it, um, Veronica Bat, do you have anything else? Um, oh, I just have a silly question, so Veronica can go first. No, no, I, I if I can't ask more questions because we'll be here all night. <laughs> um, no such I thing just, as a silly question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so I am a big fan of Mark Bridgman's, and I enjoy his fashion choices. And um, <laughs> I see, like, I know that um, you also like make, sometimes make some interesting choices, like with your ties and bow ties and everything. And I just wondered, like, if you guys give each other tips or like. <laughs> Or like really, oh like oh like let's go to the haberdashery and get some new like ties and cufflinks. I can assure you that Mark Bergevin will never come to me for fashion. That's that's not going to happen. So the one the fun thing is is that I I don't own I don't think I own a necktie. I haven't worn a necktie in years. Um, no. Okay. I, I love bow ties. I'm I'm a bit of a throwback to old school. Uh, I wear uh, suspenders uh, and bow ties and sort of once awesome. uh, every yeah. year or two. Once every year or two, a player will reach out and yank on my on my bow tie in the dressing room, <laughs> thinking it's a clip on, which They're of course it isn't. I was trying to remember who it was a few years back who, who I don't think it might have been probably PK Subban. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, yeah, I think that well, yeah. it might have been. It wouldn't have surprised me it was PK, but somebody opened my bow tie and they just felt very sheepish. And then I stood in front of them without a mirror and tied it back up. And yeah. I, oh, oh, me and I, I said, let me guess, you want six neckties and they're all just sort of still knotted and they're hanging on a hanger in the closet. And you put on one before you come to the rink and you don't know how to tie them because your dad did them all for you. <laughs> so, uh, but but no, it's Burn. Uh, it's. You look at you look at uh, at games now. I mean, it was even a little odd uh, seeing players arriving at the games during the postseason this past season, you know, in in sweats and dressed casually. Um, hockey players, uh, a lot of guys that do like uh, to spend some money on clothes, and, yes. uh, and and there's a bit of a competition among some of the guys. They come in and unbelievable. I mean, these guys will spend more on a suit than uh, than I will I will spend on groceries in six months. <laughs> so um, <laughs> you know, yeah. you just um, hey, it's we all kind of uh, we all have our own sense of it, but I mean, I 
I look back to the days, uh, the old, some of the, the black and white stuff of the, that you see in press boxes, uh, and, and, and it was an event. I yeah. love some of the old <laughs> photographs when you see pictures of, of fans in the stands, and, and the men and women have dressed as though they're going to a concert or they're going to an opera. It was really a big event. And it was before the days of uh, of cell phones and scoreboards and in-game presentation. You went and you watched a hockey game, and uh, there were very few kids actually in the in the arena. It was, um, you know, this was an adults' night out. And uh, yeah. no, for me, it's uh, it's always it's always suit and tie, and uh, that's the way I've always been. That will never change. So, but no, I don't expect Mark Bergevin will ever. Oh, <laughs> Carbono and I. Carbo and I talked about Ties a fair bit because his wife uh, takes care of uh, some of the stuff. One guy I do compare Ties is Dave Keon because he also loves oh, bow ties. And he and I will okay. compare places where we buy ties and he'll be somewhere and suddenly I'll get a text message and it's Keon sending me a note saying, I just bought this bow tie and what do you think of this one? <laughs> and um, I've, I've steered his wife to a couple places where I buy ties nice. where she gets stuff for him. So. Um, but I mean, uh, Dave and I are both old school. Uh, I will not be uh, Brendan Gallagher um, or Shea Weber or Carrie Price will never come to me and say, "Where do you buy your ties?" Not gonna. Happen. <laughs> okay, so speaking of Brendan Gallagher, uh, he 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 is very particular about his ties. He's very superstitious about his ties. Um, he did a video a couple of years ago about like it was like a, the the Habs welcome to my crib thing, and he went to his he has a tie like cabinet. And he has a, like a selection of ties that he's bought and then a selection of ties that he inherited from his grandfather. And it, he will not wear a tie twice in a row if they lost the previous game and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and so I sent him ties one year for Christmas. That's I said, right. I, like four ties that I went and I bought like and picked out and I wrote a letter. And he's never, I've never seen him wear any of them. I look every game. To see if he's walking in wearing them, and like a couple of them were like Habs colors, and then there was one that had stars on it because to me he's a star, and he's never <laughs> worn a single one. So if you're ever if you're ever in a bind, just be like, hey, he he has extra ties. I know because I. <laughs> Well, next time I'm talking with Brendan, I'll ask him why he hasn't pulled them out. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's this was, this right. Was like three years ago, <laughs> he's never worn one. Oh, well, well yeah. it's it, it's fun. Some of these guys, as I say, they're uh, we see them uh, coming into the arena uh, up from the parking garage, and they're actually cameras that are outside the Canadians' dressing room, and they video these guys as they're coming in. And uh, and wow, some of these guys look they're right off a runway. They've been they've been dressed by the best oh, yeah. tailors in the city of like Montreal. Ben Chirac. Many of them probably have been. You know. So. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's very true. Now. Another another fashion icon in the Montreal area would have to be John Liu. Have you ever oh, spoken to sure. him about <laughs> his yeah, style we, choices? We kind of go back. I I predate John with uh, with bow ties. Uh, John has a tailor. I don't. I don't. Uh, John has a personal tailor, and he gets he gets some of his stuff uh, made. And he does he. I he gets he his masks made to, to match his outfits. Was it the NHL? It was an NHL. I think it was the Stanley Cup playoffs a couple of years. Stanley Cup final. John arrived in a suit that had short pants. And yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, he has um, a few of those. <laughs> I don't. I don't have the legs that John Lou has. Okay, so I'm not going to be wearing short pants with. You got to <laughs> do with yoga with him. With him soon. and Mindy. He and his dog do yoga together. Yeah. So, uh, so, so John, I mean, we we never. It's not like John and I compare notes. I'll be surprised some nights if he's wearing a bow tie at the game. He, he 
he switches back and forth, but I will always, always, always be wearing a, a bow tie. Always sure. bow tie. Always. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, awesome. All right. Well, Dave, Amazing. thank you so, thank you so, so much. much for coming on. Thanks, it's always Dave. a pleasure. And uh, reading your material, seeing you uh, tweeting uh, on, you know, on Twitter, of course, <laughs> it's always, it's, it's both, um, it's, it's a great dose of history and I love history. Great, um, you know, lessons there. And it's, like I said, a treasure chest of knowledge. Thank you so much for coming yeah, on with us. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you for telling me that Alexander Romanov got married. I had no idea. I guess, <laughs> I guess, I guess my invitation was lost in the mail. <laughs> I think it was a small affair. It was very small, yes. Yeah. Well, I absolutely uh, love any time you folks have me on. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, your passion for uh, for hockey and the Montreal Canadiens uh, shines through. And uh, any time we get a chance to come on and uh, share a little bit of the history of the game, I always uh, tell people that you don't have a present or a future without your past. And uh, and I love talking and and writing and uh, and discussing some of the legends of the game. Um, I've always maintained that um, if these gentlemen are still with us, I'd like to celebrate their lives and tell people about uh, how you know how much they meant to the game. And when they're gone, I'd like to be able to remind people how important uh, a part of the game they were, whether they played a thousand games or one. It's uh, sometimes the gentlemen on whose backs the NHL uh, was built, the lesser lights who, uh, who were very important building blocks in the league, who were uh, massively important and and they're some of the, the best friends I made in the game, not the guys who are the, the, the absolute legends and the superstars, but some of the guys who were around for a couple seasons and uh, were up and down from the minors. They're the guys who have the great stories, and they're always so appreciative of, of having someone ask them about their lives and their, their stories, and they're always happy to share them. So any chance I get uh, to, uh, to share and pass along some of their stories is always a good day and a good night for me. So thanks so much for having me on tonight. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. And have yourself a good night. You too. Thanks, Thanks so Dave. Again. You good night. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, then, uh, so about the uh, NHLPA. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, man, Dave Stubbs. What a what a, what an icon. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. I am um, bow ties every day. Man, what a guy. Dude, I remember you would have a bow tie if you could see your neck. I'm so... Yeah. If you wore a bow tie, we would be like, oh, you're wearing a bow tie. I'll take well, you know what I would have to it. do? I would I would have to braid my beard into two separate beards <laughs> and have the bow no, tie please, in the No, please, God, no. Don't. No, Dave, don't. Or if not, don't if, do if not braid it, then at least tie it off or something like that. Yeah, I, I'll, pigtails to the yeah, side. Like, like, yeah, like pig. With little bows at the bottom. Like <laughs> pig. Three bows in a row. Beard. <laughs> Tails. <laughs> when I was bartending at my last job, we had to wear suspenders and bow ties. And the only guy that we worked with, he had a long beard, and <laughs> so he and it covered up his bow tie, so he just wouldn't wear one because it was annoying. And he was like, "They can't tell that it's not on." Yeah, and exactly. I was like, Man, I wish I could grow a beard because <laughs> I hated wearing that bow tie. I um, wish that would be fun. I mean, I don't know why, but it would be cool to learn how to tie a bow tie. I have no idea. Me just, neither. Just get um, just get like a. I think you could probably just get a length of ribbon or cloth, and then YouTube. Yeah. Oh, you learn everything on YouTube, yeah. of course. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah. I can tie neckties, you know, yeah. left, right, center, no I can't, problem. I had uh, to wear got, a tie to school in Chile. Uh, we had a uniforms. Yeah. You have the single knot. 
You have the single knot Windsor. You have the double knot Windsor. Those are my three. Actually, that's all I got. But those are the only ones you need, honestly. You got I two just tied it once dinner, a year. One of them for <laughs> weddings and funerals. There you go. Yeah. And depending on the dinner, oh. how you know how formal or laid back you want to go. I know for my Blues Brother video for Metal Dave, I only did a the one knot because that's what they did in the movies. Barack Obama doesn't wear a tie anymore. When he, he was on with like he was on with Colbert a couple weeks ago, and Colbert got dressed up like jacket tie oh. the whole thing, <laughs> and Barack was there like with a nice shirt and nice jacket, but no tie. And Stephen's like, "Uh, what is going on here?" And he said, "I don't believe in ties. I'm not the president believe. anymore, and I'm <laughs> I'm not wearing a tie unless it's like literally a funeral or some occasion where it's absolutely required." But it, yeah, he doesn't wow. wear ties anymore. I bet Colbert was crushed. <laughs> he was because Colbert looked like he was dressed to go to a wedding. Barack <laughs> Obama was there. That was a good interview. I love them both. Yes. Wow. Um, but did y'all see? Did you guys not see John John Liu doing yoga with Mindy? No, I did. It was on Instagram. Oh my god! You need to go okay, on Instagram. It's okay, so cute. It. I have to get his notifications set up on Instagram. Yeah, he doesn't post a ton. Um, no. When he but posts. but when he posts, it's wonderful. <laughs> oh man, so good, man. There's so much I could have asked. Uh, we didn't even get to Patrick Wah. Yeah, and that was the one thing I was thinking of getting into, but that would have been that's a whole episode by itself. Oh yeah. my god. Oh yeah, literally. <sighs> so, anyways, well, with that being said, we are way over time, Beth. We're so happy that you're back. Yeah, welcome I'm back. Glad to we be missed back. you I so miss, much. I miss you guys so much. I'll miss you a lot. I thought about we you all the time. So did all our listeners. So welcome back. Absolutely. I'm glad to be back. Thank you for being patient with me while I was gone. That's nothing. Just everybody. Nothing to thank. We're just happy to have you. That's it. Yay. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> bye. 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 bye.